Welcome to It's All Political on Fifth and Mission. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today I'm going to take you back to the early chaotic days of the pandemic. Remember that Navy commander who sent an email to the top brass begging for more help as COVID was quickly spreading on the nuclear aircraft carrier he commanded? Retired Navy Captain Brett Crozier is my guest today. The Santa Rosa native became the center of an international story in March 2020 after the Chronicle obtained that email, which he sent as the virus was running wild among the 5,000 sailors on the USS Theodore Roosevelt, which was docked in Guam. The leak of that email and the political turmoil that followed eventually cost Crozier his job. It also cost Thomas Modley his job. He was the Secretary of the Navy who relieved Crozier of his command. But Crozier emerged as a hero. This is what it sounded like as his crew cheered him as he walked off the ship after being relieved of his command. To many, Crozier represented selflessness at a time in the pandemic when Americans were busy hoarding food and supplies. In contrast, he was someone so devoted to protecting the people he was responsible for that he was willing to sacrifice his own career to save them. Ultimately, only one sailor died of COVID under his command. Crozier has never talked publicly about what went down before. And believe me, we tried. My Chronicle colleague, Matthias Gaffney, my former colleague, Tal Copen, and I won a Polk Award in 2021 for our coverage of Crozier's story. But this interview is the first time he and I have ever spoken. He gives off a Zen vibe with a thoughtful, quiet intensity. That was not what I expected from someone who spent 30 years in the Navy flying Top Gun-style jets and commanding nuclear aircraft carriers. He has a memoir out. It's called Surf When You Can, Lessons in Life, Loyalty, and Leadership from a Maverick Navy Captain. It goes on sale Tuesday, and the San Diego resident will be at Book Passage in Cuerto Madera for a reading Saturday at 2. I started by asking him to explain how surfing shaped his career and balanced his life. I mean, just right off the bat, I have to warn people that I'm still a very mediocre surfer, so I haven't had the time I want in my life to <laughs> to dedicate and get better. But I think surfing represents a lot of things for me. I know we talk a lot in today's era about work-life balance, or as I like to say, I think it's actually should be called life-work balance. And I, mm-hmm. I found for myself as a leader and really throughout my entire career, the more time I spent with family, friends, things outside of work, the better I could focus and the better I could perform at work. When I took time to get away and uh, either in solitude, like when you're surfing sometimes just out there on the lineup and watching the, the sets come in, but at least you're getting away from things like phones and emails and and all the things that come to you and your leader. But also anytime you do anything outside of work where you can kind of relax, take away some of the formality, particularly in the military where there's a lot of inherent formality, true also in, in corporate life as well, you get to see people for who they are. You get to really get to meet people. I think it's important for everybody to find that, that, that balance. And maybe that's, you know, in the end why I, I chose the title of the book, because I want it to be a little bit of juxtaposition. And I want to get to the reason that sort of brings us here today. And that's the email that you sent. It was 8.48 PM on uh, March 29th, 2020, just a couple of weeks after the U.S. had gone on lockdown from COVID. You sent a four page analysis to, to 10 people in your command. You were concerned about the exploding number of COVID cases on, on your ship, Theodore Roosevelt. And you're getting conflicting responses from your higher ups who wanted to, uh, they, they just want to have more meetings and you're like, we, we need some help here. Ultimately, why did you send the, the email? I believed as a leader, your number one responsibility, your number one priority is to take care of the folks that work for you. 
And I wanted to make sure that in that situation with the threat that COVID, you know, posed to us on the confines of an aircraft carrier where there wasn't a lot of space, I didn't want to leave anything on the table. I needed to make sure we were, I was taking all action as a leader to take care of them. I don't for a minute doubt that my seniors and superiors also wanted what was best for the sailors, but I knew no one wanted it as much as I did. And I knew no one understand the situation as well as I did. Mm -hmm. It was a confusing time for the entire world. Um, didn't matter what country you lived in, what service you were in. It was a very confusing situation. And I was going to err on the side of caution because we weren't at war. And at the time, I didn't want to take unnecessary risks for my sailors. And I thought in the end of the day, operationally, it would actually be what was best. Get folks clean, get them healthy, and then go back to see if required. And I knew that you know, with all the fog that exists in a combat or war scenario or something like this, when you're not at war and there's conflicting reporting going on with all the people involved in the process, it was confusing for everybody, certainly all the way back to DC where some of these decisions were being made. So I wanted to try to cut through that fog, make sure I sent the red flares, they called it, and got the attention we needed. Now, shortly after you sent the email, your strike admiral on board asked you why you didn't set up to him first. And you told him that you didn't because there was a chance that he would have told you not to send it. And then if you did, you would have been disobeying him, uh, which would have been disobeying a direct order. Politically, you're kind of giving him plausible deniability, too, as you write in the book. Explain your reasoning then for sending it. We had had a lot of discussions, obviously. We, we worked on the same ship together. I respected him then. I still respect him now. We've had many conversations even since that moment. And in the, the day, the captain of the ship is ultimately accountable for everything that happens on board. I knew I could have had another discussion with them. I could have pleaded or we could have had more conversations with the superiors off the ship as well, but I knew that would delay it. And I didn't want to feel like I was putting that all on him, I guess. And I did want to give him some plausible deniability. I knew that I was going to rock the boat. I knew that, you know, maybe I didn't understand how it was all going to unfold, but I kind of wanted to own it, I guess, at the end of the day. And and I'll take the lumps that came with it. But do you believe you broke the chain of command by sending that email? No, I think that was taken. I mean, I think that's maybe a perception. Everybody on there was in my chain of command. I might have left somebody off that I could have included, but I definitely didn't break the chain of command. It was probably an unusual move and that I was sending it to all of them simultaneously. But I knew that was a situation we're in. I did not want to wait for the normal process that was already resulting in delays that I thought were, you know, as we were watching the COVID cases grow exponentially on the ship. Did not want to wait two, three, four more days because I was just going to add risk at the time. Now, you sent it out on an unclassified network, which was, which you write, was reasonable because at that point, most Navy doctors didn't have access to the classified networks. But if you had to do it again, would you send it? I'd like to think I would. I think in that situation, knowing what I knew at the time and the situation we were faced with and attributing the email to help break in the logjam to get us help we needed, then I'd like to think I would do exactly the same thing. Obviously, sending it on unclass was a way to kind of speed up that reaction that we wanted. There was nothing on the email that was classified. The reality is we were peerside in Guam. Every sailor has a cell phone. All the information we were talking about was, you know, although it's kept in smaller channels, it was pretty obvious what was going on. Everything that took place on the ship was making its way off the ship pretty quickly. So I think it was inevitable. The, the initial reaction after we published the story was great. The Navy got uh, 4,000 hotel rooms in Guam so your sailors could get the proper care they needed. When did you begin to get concerned that your position and possibly career could be at risk? I mean, when I went into it, I knew it was already going to be a, you know, what I you know look back and back is more of a, a conscience over a career moment. You know, when I sent the email, I knew it was going to add risk to my career, but I knew I could live with my conscience on what I thought was important to be done. 
the communication from off the ship changed uh, shortly after the story broke and after the information got out there. You know, I did see, you're right, I saw some senior Navy leadership speak up on behalf of the actions that I took. But I also sensed a tone, meetings that got canceled. With the Secretary of Defense. Secretary of Defense uh, and others that, you know, were reaching out to try to help. But I think you could tell at that point they were distancing themselves from a situation for whatever reason. And then I kind of sensed there was, you know, that it had rocked the boat in a way that I didn't anticipate politically. The acting uh, Secretary of the Navy at that point, uh, Thomas Modley, told a press conference that you sent the email to 30 people, which is untrue. So there was there were untruths out there as well. April 3rd, you were relieved of your command. Do you, do you feel betrayed by anyone in the Navy? Uh, do you feel you were abandoned or made to be the fall guy in any way? I don't. I mean, I think some people made decisions because they were angry and they were frustrated at how things were you know, unfolding, as it were. But I don't have any bitterness towards the military and certainly not the Navy. The Navy took great care of me. I served two more years after that. I kept flying fighters. And was I frustrated I didn't go back to the ship? Certainly, because I just it was such a great job. You know, I could fly a helicopter one day, I could fly a fighter the next day, I could talk to a couple thousand sailors, I could drive the ship, you know, through the South China Sea. It was a great job. But I also understand that, you know, the Navy wanted to make what they thought was the best decision on behalf of the sailors and the larger, larger organization that I stand behind. So, so definitely not, I don't feel like the fall guy. And at the end of the day, I hope, like I said earlier, I would, would have made the same decision on behalf of my sailors. I'd like to default to that side of decision-making, which is take care of your folks and and be okay with the consequences. Yeah, I want to ask you about a conversation you write about in the book with that you had with Secretary Maudley, Acting Secretary Maudley, uh, that you wrote about. He visited you while you were in Guam, recovering from COVID. You, you actually got COVID yourself uh, while you were there. He told you, uh, as you write, point blank, that he would always keep his comments professional and would never attack you personally. But just hours before he said that, he was actually on, went onto the ship and called you, quote, either too naive or too stupid to be at the helm and a martyr commanding officer. He later walked those back uh, after yeah. a lot of heat. How did that make you feel when you, when you heard about that? I think it highlighted uh, the frustrating situation that he, he was in and that when in that heat of the moment and the pressure that you know, rather than err towards the side of kindness and, 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 you know, kind of step back and take a more strategic look at it. I think he reacted angrily and knows his comments clearly were in anger, but I look back and I realized he had regretted the decision to go out there. And I think there's a lesson probably for all of us there that, you know, when you, you react out of anger, you're generally going to probably regret it because you're going to make decisions that are not in your best interest and certainly not the best interest of those you're trying to lead. Captain Crozier explains why he isn't bitter towards the Navy. And what really happened when the Secretary of the Navy paid him a surprise visit after this short break. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. You thought you were going to be reinstated on April 16th, just a few days after you lost command. The office of the chief of naval operations said they looked over your case and they were about to reinstate you, but ultimately after an investigation, they found that they were not going to recommend reinstatement. You write that you didn't dispute the decision, but you had some concerns about what the investigation found. Um, like what? Well, I mean, I think initially when the intention was to reinstate me shortly after I had left the first time, when they ultimately didn't, I knew at that point there was a political aspect to it because, you know, it had gotten higher than obviously the Department of the Navy 
because in the end, I think they're looking strategically. What you know, what is the ultimate signal we send if we put him back in? I mean, who who do we need to then hold accountable? If someone has to be held accountable at that point, the longer the investigation drew out, I just you know I knew there was less likely a chance after the initial pushback when they did not reinstate me in mid-April that they would then be able to justify a return only because so much time had passed and so much thing, so many things had changed. You're right that your your reaction at that point was very measured. You didn't get angry or vindictive. And I mean, I, I think if I was in that position, many people, they, they'd be they'd be pissed off. But you you attribute that to being to your training as a as a fighter pilot, where you're taught to be you you can't get ruffled by anything. You have to be cool under no matter what the situation is. Walk us through how that process went. Yeah, you know, that at that point I was now back in San Diego. I was with my family again. I had plenty of time to think over the situation as I was getting acclimated to my new job there on the staff in San Diego. As a fighter pilot over the years, there's, you know, you're going to have moments of stress. You're going to have moments of anxiety. You certainly have moments when your adrenaline is through the roof and coming back to land on an aircraft carrier at night in, a, in bad weather and pitching seas is always one to kind of get your heart rate going and your blood pressure up. You train a lot. You go through a lot of scenarios. You're really hard on yourself on the debrief to make sure you look at the decisions you made during the flight. And then making sure you made good decisions and analyzing and accepting the fact that maybe you made a bad decision because, you know, the heat of the moment, you misunderstood something, you know, and if you're not saying you can't feel the effects of the decision or like or dislike the decisions being made, but is there anything gained by lashing out emotionally? And I'd argue generally there's not. We tend to, I think, as a society, want to react first and think later. And I think it's always better to think first. One of the most interesting things in the book that I learned that informed your decision is what had happened three years earlier in 2017. There were two accidents that year involving Navy ships. In one, the USS Fitzgerald collided with the merchant ship. A couple months later, the warship USS John S. McCain was involved in a collision with the Liberian flag tanker ship. And Ten sailors were killed. A investigations into both of these accidents turned up that the commanding officer on both of these ships accepted risk that they didn't have to, as you write, and didn't speak up when they could have and didn't take decisive actions that they should have. Walk us through like how those accidents, I think you were involved in the investigation of one of them at yeah, least, and the second one. shaped your influence and what you did on the TR. As a leader, one of the big things you do is you manage risk. And I think you've got to scale that according to the situation you're in. So if you're in combat, I mean, the rally of combat is people die. You don't want to, but that's, that's how it works out in most cases. So you're less concerned with risk to money but you are concerned with the rest of time. In a peacetime scenario, the question becomes, and how much risk do you ever want to accept to your crew? You can't, it can't be zero. In peacetime, it can't be zero, or you would just never take off. The airplanes would never fly. Ships would never leave the pier. You, you know, and that's and that's not the operation, the, the world we work, you know, we work in. Obviously, both those COs regret decisions they made and they accepted risk. Mm. They ultimately resulted in the loss of, you know, 17 sailors collectively between the two. And and being there in Yokosuka, Japan, you see them, you see those ships and you see the ships when they come back and you see the families and you go to the memorials. So I think it, it did definitely leave an impact on me and a reminder as a CEO that when you're making those decisions, particularly when it comes to risk-based decisions, if you're not in combat, then you need to do all you can to minimize the risk to your crew. So now as you fast forward to the Theodore Roosevelt and COVID, in a peacetime scenario that we're in, the question is how much risk do you want to accept for the crew? The book is, uh, you, know, you have one chapter where you talk about what, you, what we've been talking about here, but most of the book is sort of a, a collection of life lessons, as you alluded to. And one of them is to speak up when you think things are wrong. And you, and you tell a great story about a young seaman on, on a ship 
when you commanded when you first were i think we were first starting at, at the theater roosevelt yeah yeah this young guy was like 19 years old i think he thought he saw a man going overboard and he sounded the alarm and you know when that happens on a ship five thousand people kind of grind to a halt because you gotta you gotta go find everybody and it turns out that nobody went overboard and uh, you called this young man to see you and he was pretty scared and then you tell everybody what happened next yeah, and he captured it well. And when we found out at the end of the day that it was, you know, that he was mistaken, and in fact, it was probably something else that fell in the water, but we were able to account for everybody. Uh, I did. I wanted to talk to him. Not, you know, obviously, anytime the captain of an aircraft carrier calls up a young sailor to the bridge, that that young sailor thinks for sure he's in trouble. But at the end of the day, I, what I wanted to do was thank him. I wanted to thank him for doing exactly what his job was, was to report Anytime he thinks someone might have fallen overboard or he sees something that's a threat to the ship. And that's not an easy place to be. When I was 19, I would have been hesitant to say anything as well. I think good organizations, it's not only do you want to encourage people to speak up and you know, provide feedback, but it's you almost have to expect it. Mm. You know, the saying we had in the ship was, you know, speak up when things are NKR. And then I would say it out loud, it's not quite right. <laughs> and, you know, and only the you know, and I was a math major, so maybe some people just thought I was misspelling <laughs> things. But eventually, a sailor would stand up or raise his hand and say, "Sir, you know, not quite right is NQR, not NKR." And I'd say, "You're right." But the lesson was learned, and I think this this sailor uh, did exactly what I wanted. So I thanked him when he got up to the bridge. I thanked him for doing exactly what I wanted. I gave him one of my command coins. I don't. I hopefully he still has it, and hopefully he remembers. You know that I appreciated and him for doing his job, for doing the right thing. And you retired from the Navy, as, as you said, almost exactly a year ago today. Yeah. But you've never spoken out before. Why was it important for you not to speak out? Well, I think, you know, when you're active duty, you're still committed to the mission. And even after being removed from the Roosevelt, you know, I was still committed to the mission and everything about the Navy. And I also didn't want to speak at a time when people would expect me to be talking only about the Roosevelt or expectations that I was bitter about it. Because like we said earlier, I, I'm I don't look back on that moment with any kind of bitterness. I wanted to make sure if, you know, if I was going to write a book and share stories, majority of them were going to be about all the amazing things I learned. And I think that, you know, my, my goal would be someone picks up the book and, and they knows nothing about the military or the Navy. And they're now fascinated by the adventures and that you can have and the people you can meet and whether that inspires them to join the military or, you know, or have a better understanding of the military, uh, either one I'd be okay with. But I think uh, that was kind of my goal for writing it when I did. Shortly after you were relieved of your command, we got hold of a video that someone on the ship took of uh, thousands of your sailors cheering you as you as you walked off the ship. This this is goose pimple stuff, even for reporters uh, writing about it. What was it like for you? Yeah, it was pretty surreal. I mean, I you know I was starting to not feel great. Um, I had been told early that morning. And I was, you know, I need to leave the ship by the end of the day um, at the direction of the acting secretary of the Navy. When I got to the hangar bay and I certainly was overwhelmed by the large number of folks, um, the cheering, the clapping, the chanting. And um, and I, you know, would have loved to stick around and shook hands and high fived. And but also knew that we were battling COVID and, and we didn't have a lot of protection. So last thing I want to do is, you know, worry about the spread of COVID. But so I left the ship. I think there was two things that I that I took away, um, both at the time and on reflection. First was their appreciation. And then second, I think, was in a way saying that they got it. One of my sign-offs every time I talked on the radio or I talked over the 1MC was, you know, keep your eye on your shipmate, your head on a swivel, eye on a shipmate, 
and be ready for the fight when the day comes. And and so here I was leaving the ship at a moment when they had a fight ahead of them still. I mean, the fight was going to be with COVID and and they were they were well equipped to do that. And and they in a way were saying, sir, we got it. You know, don't don't worry about us. You've trained us well. We've got a good team. We're going to continue to fight on. But I felt bad now at this point that I'm leaving the ship when, you know, that we had been part of a team together. So they did a great job. They did a phenomenal job. And they got well and rested and and clean and they went back to sea and they did some amazing stuff. Captain Brett Crozier, thank you for being on It's All Political on Fifth and Mission. It's it's great to finally talk to you. Yeah, Joe, it's great to connect and I uh, appreciate the conversation today. So thank you very much. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your family are safe and healthy. Many thanks to Captain Brett Crozier for being my guest today. He'll be at Book Passage in Quarter Madera for a reading Saturday at 2 p.m. And he'll also be speaking at his alma mater, Santa Rosa High School, at 7 p.m. on Friday. I'd like to thank Laura Wenis and the King, King Kaufman, for editing and producing this episode. And remember, whether you're the captain of the ship or you're swabbing the deck, it's all political on Fifth and Mission.